2: Busy day in the nation's capital as states continue to weigh reopening the economy. We will dive all into the latest uh, on that front. Plus, most states fall short of the White House's reopening criteria. That's really the conversation here, states all over the country having to weigh their own guidelines. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo stepping up criticism of China, but easing off that Wuhan lab claim as House Democrats, meanwhile, Push ahead with a possible aid vote for next week. Next week? I don't know. I don't know if they're going to get that vote next week or if the Senate will take it up. We're going to ask Jack Fitzpatrick to kick off the show about that. He's our Bloomberg government, government congressional reporter. But we're going to start in the DMV because it's really a perfect illustration of three different areas. Governor Larry Hogan, Republican of Maryland, Governor Ralph Northam, Democrat of Virginia, and Mayor Bowser a Democrat in the city of Washington, D.C. And all of both Hogan and Northam easing some of the restrictions or announcing some alterations to the stay-at-home orders. Get this, folks. Governor Larry Hogan altering his stay-at-home order, saying elective medical procedures will will be allowed to resume tomorrow. He's also broadened the list of safe outdoor activities to include golf, tennis, boating, fishing, Opening of state beaches, go down to the boardwalk if you want for exercise, you know, but you still got to follow the social distancing measures that we all still have to proceed. So Governor Hogan altering the stay at home order. Then I go to Virginia where Northam, a Democrat, uh, Governor Ralph Northam said he expects to ease, and I'm reading from the Bloomberg Terminal, ease some of the restrictions on non-essential businesses by mid-May. Mid-May, next week, he's going to ease some of the restrictions. And this was after, you know, Northam was get under pressure because he was like the latest in the country. But even Ralph Northam is easing some of the restrictions. But Mayor Bowser, Muriel Bowser, Democrat Muriel Bowser, she said today that she's that residents are still under a stay-at-home order and she has no updates, no updates from the mayor's office. On when she will lift restrictions that are set to expire May fifteenth. What gives, Jack Fitzpatrick, Bloomberg government reporter uh, on the line? So it, it really is interesting to see Bowser versus Northam versus Hogan all in the D.M.V. region, and it looks like they're you know they've hit the plateau, but they're all doing different different uh, reactions. Except well, Bowser is. I mean, it looks like Northam and Hogan are on the same page. Am I wrong?
3: Right. Well, the first thing that comes to mind when you compare these is uh, the the two governors have states with rural areas where things really could be different compared to urban areas, whereas Bowser is in control just of a city. And you've heard some frustration, even in this uh, congressional hearing today, a lot of talk about Andy Harris from Maryland, from a rural part of Maryland, saying, why should people – who live way out far from a city who could go to the grocery store and barely see anybody else be subject to the same restrictions as, as we would see in a city. You know, not everybody needs to model things off of New York City. The risk, of course, with that, when you're talking about letting people onto beaches and, and easing things up, is do you get, uh, do you get people from D.C. who say, hey, let's go rent a beach house? Uh, out in Maryland, do you do you get so many people saying, "Oh, we're back to normal," that then boardwalks are crowded? You know, even a, a rural area can can really struggle with this. So I, I think you're probably going to see some easing at the state level, where there's a sense that. Certain areas are better off than others, but the risk is always there, and there's there's always the frustrating risk that they might have to pull this back and, and go back into a, a harsher set of quarantine measures.
2: But, see, it's interesting, Jack Fitzpatrick, because it was so cold out and rainy today. I mean, who's going go to want to go for a dip in the ocean down the shore when it's so cold for to begin with? But it is – I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I guess I would ask you this. I mean, Governor Hogan's got Baltimore – You know, it's the same day that they said, "Hey, school. You know, the kids aren't going to be back in Maryland through the end of the year." And uh, so, you know, I hear you, but I mean, what? I I just don't. Do you think Mayor Bowser is under pressure from 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 the feds? I mean, who who is she listening to? Is it is it the business community of the DMV? I mean, I'm looking at these numbers from the business community of Washington DC, Jack. The district has lost 1.7 billion dollars. In travel spending alone, and they're bracing to lose 163 million dollars from the cancellation of 22 conferences. I think just that's just at the convention centers. Yeah, that's according to Elliot Ferguson, who's the head of city tourism arm of uh, Destination DC. I I mean, you know, I look at there's a lot of cities. There's Richmond, there's Arlington, you know, in Virginia. I don't know. I mean what 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 is the why May, why is Mayor Bowser making it appears a different calculation than Northam or Hogan? or am I reading too much into this and maybe we'll get an update tomorrow?
3: I, I mean, I think everyone in public office is facing really competing pressures. there's There's the economic pressure, there's the fact that nobody likes this. but there are a lot of public opinion polls that show Americans in general are on board. Uh, I do not raise the rural versus urban divide to necessarily justify anybody's actions. I don't think I want to take a side on that. But there, there is a risk, as you mentioned. There are cities in Maryland. There's cities in Virginia. DC isn't the only city in the area. But there's even a risk in rural areas if you open things up and people kind of lose discipline. Anywhere could be subject to an outbreak. the 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 reason there's this pressure to at least ease up a little is I think there's a growing awareness that things aren't going to just snap back to normal immediately. We're we're going to have to do some extra measures, uh, and this is going to weigh our, on our economy potentially for a year, a couple years. A vaccine takes a very long time, so we're kind of trying to thread the needle in a lot of places. And you're going to see different people take different approaches, but they're all subject. To these competing pressures of safety but also trying to come up with some sort of long-term plan where we're not at home for just you know a year without any exceptions at all
2: yeah it's going to be interesting to see how mayor bowser plays this uh from a health standpoint from an economic standpoint and, and the like all right so busy on capitol hill do you really think speaker pelosi is going to get to some bill by by next week jack is that what we're hearing economic stimulus next week coming from capitol hill it could be
3: next week. One of the questions is, is this going to be purely a Democratic bill, or will there be some input from Republicans? Uh, and we still don't know exactly what's going to be in it. There's a, a debate still going on among Democrats themselves. They they know they want to do the state and local money. The question is, what other kind of medical, medical stuff would go in? Uh, are we going to be talking about another round of payments? Is there going to be an extension of the unemployment stuff? Um, the, there are a lot of question marks, and the main question mark is, are, are Republicans going to work on this with them at all, or is this going to solely be a Democratic bill? If so, they could get it out early, but there'd be a lot of work left to go before anything becomes law.
2: Interesting. And and is so you don't think that that this could end up on uh, that this could end up on the president's desk by the end of next week? We're still farther off from that.
3: I'd be surprised because Mitch McConnell has talked about slowing things down and focusing on making sure the previous tranches of money are are spent well. He he kind of suddenly took a a much slower approach and pumped the brakes, whereas Pelosi has been saying we need another bill now. So just knowing it's got to get through the Senate, uh, let alone the difficulty of any bipartisan negotiations, you know, maybe we'll see something come out next week. But uh, to get to the president's desk is, is probably a little tougher.
2: All right, we're going to leave it there. Jack FitzPatrick, you're doing a great job. Thank you so much for all of your reporting uh, and breaking all of this down for us both in the in the DMV and up on Capitol Hill around the country. I'm Kevin Cerilli. More next. We head down to Florida. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
4: Listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cerilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. It's
2: hump day. Happy hump day, folks. I'm Kevin Cerilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Did you see this story on the terminal? I can't believe it. I cannot believe it. Hold on, let me pull it up. Peloton sales jump 66%. On COVID-19 boosts for home workers, Mark Gurman writes on the Bloomberg Terminal, Peloton Interactive said quarterly revenue soared 66% and paid digital subscribers jumped 64% after the COVID-19 pandemic spurred thousands of people to work out at home. I got to be honest, and this is awful. This is an awful thing to say. But it is kind of funny to watch some of the Instagram posts that people are doing with their workouts and everything. You know, don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself. Go on a walk. Go on a walk. But, hey, Peloton, it's working out for Peloton. I started the year thinking, oh, you know what? I'm going to try to take more trips. Yeah, well, then we all work from home for – the pandemic. Nikki Freed, Florida's Commissioner of agricultural of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Nikki, I was in South Beach in January for a, a wedding. I was on jet skis. I got a tan. <laughs> I should be down in Florida, Nikki. I shouldn't be <laughs> well, out here in Washington where it's freezing cold, Nikki.
1: Well, it is uh, beautiful. I'm in Tallahassee, and it's a blue, blue skies, but you know, born and raised in Miami. So I, I feel you. I feel you. But I want to just comment that correct about Peloton. I'm staring and looking at mine that I bought about three weeks ago, and planning on after this interview to actually get on and do a ride. So I concur, and those numbers are absolutely correct.
2: (laughs) I don't have one, but you know, I I used to go to the spinning classes enough. Yeah, you know, it's I. I just let me tell you something. I'm going to be the second they open those gyms. I got to go right back to it. Nikki, tell me about the impact of uh, COVID-19 uh, from, let's start with tourism, because Florida is such a dominated tourism industry and agriculture is number two. But talk to me about tourism, you know, and, and, and the, the negative impact that that it's had on on tourism.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, as you know, everybody comes here for not only just the beaches, but, but Disney, the cruise line industry, and that's all stopped. Uh, You know, and most of the people, we had about 880,000 people that are in just tourism and and restaurants alone. Um, And so that's what, you know, got hit the worst. Um, That's why we're seeing our unemployment numbers just soaring through. Uh, I think we're about at 2 million people that have applied for unemployment. And most of those are in the tourism industry and and restaurants and lodging. I mean, even Airbnb, I mean, that's being hit significantly. Uh, So it's taken a, a real big plummet to the point that agriculture is actually number one economic driver in our state right
2: now. And Nikki Fried's on the line. She's the highest-ranking Democratic official in the in the state of Florida, and she's the only Democrat who has won in Florida in two thousand and uh, and in, in, in two thousand and eighteen. She oversees a hundred and thirty-seven billion dollars of Florida's agricultural uh, industry and food supply chain, uh, and she also oversees the school lunch program that two million kids, Florida students, depend upon. You know, there's been a lot of talk in agriculture about Tyson's in particular. You know, they came out with a statement saying that the food supply chain is breaking. What can we do, Nikki, to make sure that the food supply chain doesn't break? And what are you doing in Florida to make sure it doesn't break in Florida?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's obviously been one of our concerns is, you know, as I'm seeing uh, all what's happening more so in the Midwest and especially in those processing plants, Florida is not known for processing. Um, We're the number two when it comes to specialty crops, uh, and we have a huge uh, cow uh, population and and beef industry. Uh, You know, so some of the things that we've been talking about is making sure that that our workforce is strong. Uh, You know, all of our 2 million workers across the entire state that are involved in agriculture were were deemed essential during uh, our stay at home. Uh, so it was essential that we made sure that they had all the appropriate PPEs, that they were following all the CDC guidelines, uh, that they were doing the social, you know, social distancing. And we were even monitoring that if we had an outbreak at any of our uh, temporary housing for any of our, our migrants and H2A workers, uh, that we were being alerted immediately so that we can, you know, kind of curtail that. But, yeah, it's definitely a concern of ours, and we're keeping monitoring. And, and that's what I definitely would encourage people across the, the country that are involved in agriculture and these types of processing plants uh, is make sure that they're following all the appropriate guidelines. But I think a, a big issue that, that I want people in the state of Florida especially to know is that while we're seeing these processing plants being closed, uh, we are not seeing a shortage of food. Uh, again, we you know, have about 800,000 uh, pounds of beef that we have here in the state of Florida. And so please make sure that, that you're not hoarding the food kind of stuff that we saw at the very front end of this pandemic, uh, because that's really what will break the system, is if everybody goes out and stockpiles all of their, their sausages and bacon and beef, that will break the system. Uh, there's enough backpile of food um, that people should not be concerned. Uh, we will catch up. Uh, Just don't hoard food is my biggest advice for for across the country as well.
2: Nikki Fried's on the line. She's one of the top Democrats in the state of Florida. She's the Commissioner of Agriculture and Consumer Services. You've been critical of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. What do you want to see him do more of? Yeah,
1: I think it's a couple of things. I I think first and foremost, transparency. Uh, This is a time when, you know, people are scared uh, that they're losing their their jobs. Uh, They have potentially family members and loved ones that that have been, you know, sick. Uh, Unfortunately, we've lost a lot of Americans across the entire country. And we have about over 1,500 deaths here in the state of Florida. And so transparency is is essential to make sure that the information that we're giving to our citizens is not only accurate, uh, but we're telling them the full story because we're asking people to make personal decisions, to go out of their house, to be be back engaged in whether it's restaurants or eventually our our gyms. Uh, and yeah. so it makes sure that we are giving them up-to-date, accurate information. And unfortunately, um, that's just not been the case. Uh, we've seen, even as the reports last week, uh, that the morgues were being told to not report COVID deaths. Uh, that, that, again, is very disheartening and worrisome to individuals who are relying on government uh, to provide the accurate information. Same thing with our unemployment system. Uh, our unemployment system has been a debacle Uh, Since day one, we've had 2 million people in the first week apply apply and and try to call in. Uh, Sitting on seven, eight-hour call waits, Uh, the system has has broken down uh, offline for for weekends at a time, trying to reboot. And still now 40% of those who had even applied and got through were deemed ineligible. Um, So it's so important that right now that we're giving our our citizens all the up-to-date information and that government is working together. Uh, regardless of, of D R I, uh, this pandemic doesn't know partisan politics, uh, and so really it's important that our of your elected officials are working together, all resources, all hands on deck. Uh, to get through this, and, and we just haven't seen that here in the state, unfortunately.
2: All right, Nikki Freed, I look forward to the day that I can go back to Florida. Nikki Freed, she is Florida's commissioner <laughs> of uh, of agriculture and con- and consumer supplies. Thanks for calling in. Appreciate it as always. Coming up, we pivot to foreign policy. We're going to check in with A.B. Stoddard and Brett Bruin. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
4: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: With millions of Americans still stuck at home amid coronavirus shutdowns and stay-at-home orders, Comcast said Wednesday that it's seeing shifts in new behaviors and television viewing patterns. Andres Guerra-Luz reports on the Bloomberg Terminal. We're watching more than an extra workday's worth of content each week, according to a Comcast blog post that they posted earlier today. Eben Novi Williams, he's a sports business reporter for Bloomberg News, he's coming on the program tomorrow. This tweet got my attention. According to Comcast, since early March, TV viewership is up eight hours per week per household. And streaming video content is up 35%. The average household is now watching 66 hours of TV per week. And that's without live sports. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Joining us on the program, a good friend of mine, good friend of the program, uh, A.B. Stoddard, the legendary A.B. Stoddard, Associate Editor and Columnist at Real Clear Politics. A.B., what are you streaming? What are you watching?
5: You know what, Kevin, I have really been trying to clear up clutter and clean closets and read (laughs) self-help books, and I've been staying away from TV consumption, but my three high schoolers and my husband, on the other hand, I think they've been making up for, um, in my absence, and they're reaching the 66-hour threshold for sure. The
2: only thing I'm watching is Michael Jordan documentary and and some old trashy reality. Which I heard is great. It's, oh, it's amazing. I I can't get enough. I can't wait to uh, talk to Evan Novi Williams about it tomorrow. AB, I have so many questions for you. So I, I want to, we're going to talk foreign policy coming up later in the program with Brett, uh, Bruin. But with, with you, I want to know specifically this tension of reopening the economy, not reopening the economy through the prism of politics. I know you've been writing about this. You've got thoughts on this. What, what is the latest in the AB Stoddard world?
5: Well, it's interesting. You know, when when you talk to members um, on both sides of the aisle, what they seem to be in disagreement about is what they'll do in the next round of relief funding. But they seem privately to be in agreement that you can't inject demand into an economy when people are still afraid. They don't sense – I mean, people are not stupid. You look at those polls, Kevin, everywhere – Red and blue America combined, these majorities are massive, from 65 percent up past 80 percent for too early to go to the movies, too early for large sports gatherings, too early for restaurants, too early for church. This is really – it's really uniform, even though you see some governors and some um, party leaders and the president saying we've got to get going. It's, it, it, most of the country doesn't think – we have a system in place to keep them safe, to control the spread of the virus. I would agree that on the 6th of May, there is no national plan to control the spread of the coronavirus. And um, we don't have testing and tracing in place to prevent um, a return to outbreaks. So um, people um, are going to make their own decisions despite these openings up. And, I, you know, when you talk to lawmakers, including Republicans, they get that. They know that they need to cheerlead. Uh, for openings uh, like the president, but they also know you cannot force my mom with a compromised lung condition out into the system um, that, you know, could really endanger her um, so easily. So um, I think they you know, you see Republicans are pretty quiet on this. And they're just going to sort of watch and wait, uh, even though the, uh, you know, the CDC yesterday said we're in an acceleration phase of the disease. And everybody is telling us that it will in a few weeks, um, we will know because it takes a few weeks after opening up um, if it boomeranged. And, and, and we'll have this conversation all over again. So but there is it's... a consensus view, I think, be, you know, between Republicans and Democrats that. Uh, Scared voters aren't going to move.
2: Ab Satter's on the line, and 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 I want to ask one more question about this because one of the things that you do so brilliantly that I've really struggled with, uh, you know, to be candid in terms of articulating. Right, I'm trying my best, but I think what you really encapsulated right there is this: you're separating the talk from the actual. The actual conversations that are going on, uh, both at the C-suite level uh, and in the in the political realm as well, uh, in that you've got a lot of rhetoric. You know, the president's in Arizona, uh, you know, being a cheerleader for, for a robust economy. Everyone wants a robust economy. But I guess if you flash forward A.B. Stoddard to November, it, can you just – double down on how there are politicians in Michigan and Wisconsin who want to be on the side early of saying they wanted to reopen the economy because, because they're, they're playing the the longer game into November.
5: Well, if, if the numbers spike and it's a dreadful mistake, they'll say, I'm sorry, I just want people to get back to work. You know, that all best intentions, right? So this is such a, a difficult balance. Um, But the epidemiologists have been telling us since March, Kevin, that you have to overreact instead of underreact to get it under control. And they're they're basically telling us that we don't have a system to contain the spread of the virus on May 6th. So, you know, politically, everyone's going to do what they think their voters expect them to do. But voters are not looking out, you know, realistically. I mean, besides the ones that are scared to leave their, their houses at how their lives can return to normal and the economy can return to normal um, unless there, is, there are new systems put in place. There's no old normal unless we make a new one. And that, that's the problem. And I continue to argue about a federal national authority behind tracing. You know, you can have – I said this on Fox the other night. I don't know if I artic- articulated it very well. But – The federalism uh, argument wins with with tests, right? The governor with the most tests wins. He gets his his, uh, workers back to work first, and, oh, that's terrific. The the president has basically, without because he will not advocate for for a a federal authority for tracing, and he actually at one briefing said we might have to erect barriers in between the states. He's basically saying that um, we're going to let the virus run free, Um, or we are going to have to wreck barriers in between the states and ban all domestic and international travel. This is the reason. I was supposed to be in Georgia today giving a speech. If I had gotten there and then gotten so sick yesterday that I went to a clinic or a hospital and was tested, would I have been infected in Maryland or Georgia? We don't know. If they tested me and I was positive, would they keep me there? We don't know. If they kept me there, would Georgia pay or would Maryland pay? When I went home, eventually, when would they let me go home? And then would they let me leave? And then when I went home, would Georgia uh, track me back to, to the Maryland authorities, make mess. sure that all my contacts? So it's a, mess. a federal authority has to supersede all the states who are desperately trying to solve this problem. Without that, we're like not even having this conversation, Kevin.
2: No, I, that, that is so forward. spot on. A. B., I mean, I always learn when I talk to my good friend, A.B., I mean, because it's, it's so spot on in terms of the larger, uh, the larger picture, the bigger picture, and she, she, you're able to, to sort through the fog uh, that, that we find ourselves in. I've got one more question for you, and we've got two minutes left. What is the, Where are the bipartisan areas on Capitol Hill right now, A.B., for a policy change in U.S. and China relations?
5: oh I don't know um that's everyone's still squabbling and using China as a political you know hot potato, as you know. I don't know that we're going to get to a consensus view on how to proceed with them until after the election and really get at sort of you know when they um started being honest versus when you know the administration stopped protecting them and all and all that I think it's too soon to tell um i i do um I know that there's um, not likely to be a payroll tax cut <laughs> like the president <laughs> wants. But right now, I, can, you know, China is this big thing where the Republicans have shifted. As you know, Kevin, this is their electoral message, right? Just don't defend Trump and his response to the pandemic. Just pivot back to China and keep everyone motivated on important changes that we have to make, right? Like bringing our health care supplies, um, having our own supply chain and not being dependent on China next time. So I don't think we'll actually get to... Um, an interest in, uh, on either side in consensus on, on China. For until after the election,
2: Ab Stoddard, thanks for checking in, my friend. And I hope you do Kevin, get to great watch. Great talk to you. I hope you get to stream something. Take it, take it easy on yourself, Ab. You work too hard. <laughs> You're the best. Thank you so much, Ab Stoddard. You, Kevin. Always learn well. something. Uh, and I will talk with you later, my friend. Ab, of course, uh, is uh, the associate editor and columnist at Real Clear Politics. Coming up, we're going to stick with foreign policy, stick with China. Some new developments uh, on Venezuela. Brett Bruin. No one knows Venezuela better than Brett, president of the Global Situation room and former white house director of global engagement he's going to join us i'm kevin cerilli chief washington correspondent for bloomberg television and for bloomberg radio and you are listening to bloomberg
4: 99.1. this is bloomberg sound on with kevin cerilli on bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 fm hd2
2: I'm Kevin Cerilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio, and joining us on the telephone line to talk all things foreign policy. Brett Bruin. I don't know why I talk like that on air. Brett Bruin, President of the Global Situation Room and former White House Director for Global Engagement. Brett, I'm sorry I did like that level thing, you know, with my voice. How you been, buddy? Doing all right. Uh, How's the fam? What are you guys watching? The Michael Jordan thing? I'm obsessed.
4: Well, we're doing COVID co working these days. Oh. We've, we've got uh, a first grader doing uh, his best at e learning.
2: I don't know how the kids do it. You know, I can barely figure out like my whole work situation. I got all these equipment, the buttons. You know, it's like I'm, it's, I don't even, you know, I feel like I'm a kid again and I'm doing the toy trains. Remember that? The Lionel. I used to do it with my dad back in Delco. I miss it. But uh, if there's so much equipment. And, and then part of me feels like I'm a DJ. But I'm not, I'm <laughs> so i got to keep it focused so that Christine Baratta, our executive producer, doesn't get notes that I'm off topic. Brett, what's going on in Venezuela, buddy?
4: Well, it's a mess, and, and that is uh, saying uh, a lot because uh, it is normally a messy situation. But we seem to have uh, a bit of a, a cowboy, you know, mercenary effort uh, by – A few former uh, Green Berets in the U.S. Army who uh, linked up with some characters, and it's not clear exactly who or why, uh, but some folks from perhaps the the opposition, not to suggest that uh, Juan Guaido and the recognized opposition was involved, but others. And and this is a a mix of, of lots of different interests and individuals. And they decided to hop in a boat. Uh, a couple of these American soldiers, along with some former uh, Venezuelan military guys, and they got captured.
2: So, what does that mean? I mean, so what does it mean in terms of, I guess, foreign policy for the United States, for President Guaido and the administration? Speaker Pelosi, even. I mean, so many of our of our allies around the world have been so supportive of Juan Guaido uh, and what and what you know he represents, even. And and, and now with the pandemic, specifically for Venezuela, what does it how how does how does the pandemic, if at all, impact the global support for Juan Guaido?
4: Well, there's a couple of things to unpack. First, you know, as usual, the Trump administration managed to exacerbate matters. Pompeo today in his press briefing said uh, to a question about whether or not the U.S. was involved well, we weren't, but if we were, it would have gone a lot better. So he's putting out there this dangerous idea that somehow the U.S. could uh, engage in a military intervention in Venezuela, which will just be fodder for Maduro's propaganda. And you know, to your question about not that how- they
2: wouldn't stop propagandizing anyway, but go ahead. No, and, and I hear that, your point.
4: You know your question about how does, you know, a situation like Venezuela hold up during the COVID crisis, the short answer is not well. There are a lot of crises around the world, whether it's Venezuela, uh, what's going on in the Middle East, North Korea, that are getting short shrift, not just in media headlines. But let's not forget, I was talking to some folks at the State Department today, our diplomats are working yeah. from home for the most part, both here in Washington as well as around the world. And it's really hard to do diplomacy when you can't actually sit down and have a face-to-face conversation because people don't want to share sensitive information over the phone, even over you know things like Signal. So we're not getting the information.
2: You know, Brett, that's such a great point. And even beyond that, just from a national, from a safety perspective, you know, we, we talked on this program about, you know, of course, the military. We talked about small businesses. We've talked about politics. But you think of the people who are who are serving in embassies all over the world in incredibly dangerous parts of the world. and And quite frankly, maybe that in countries that don't have the medical infrastructure that. Europe or, or America is fortunate enough to have, even though that there are weaknesses and improvements that need to be made. You know, and that's, it's, it's really startling and it, and we've got to continue to think of them as well, uh, throughout all, throughout all of this. I, I want to bring the conversation in, in the last couple of minutes that we have together, Brett, uh, to, to China and, and uh, this, this emerging sense of nonpartisanship on some areas. Yes, there are, is partisanship on others, but where do you see the consensus uh, from lawmakers on the left and the right in terms of a, a, of a new type of coherent strategy uh, for uh, targeting and untangling, rather, China's web?
4: Well, let's uh, recognize that China, and this is something folks on both sides of the aisle can agree on, is uh, really upping its disinformation game. It's um, being much more aggressive on a diplomatic front. All the while, the United States is, um, the administration, is is lobbying these, you know, political um, bombs over to Beijing, which aren't helping matters. And so, you know, today the suggestion was, well, you know, we want to see Taiwan back in the World Health Organization. Okay, an important issue, let's discuss it, but let's also address the real challenge uh, of a health crisis, the economic crisis, and then we can get to these other uh, geopolitical questions. And so I'm afraid that that the administration is squandering goodwill, both here in the United States, around the world. Australia is um, concerned, despite having uh, some of the same views about what China has done in uh, blocking access to information, vital information to save lives. And yet, you know, Pompeo, Trump—they take it ten steps too
2: far. Well, okay, but I, and I hear, I hear. You know, Brett has previously served in the Obama administration. But, but to bring it back from a nonpartisan standpoint, how what do, what can the United States do, uh, and what can our allies do? How can the U.S. forget about parties for a second? What can the U.S. and allies do to pressure China? to to open up to be transparent i mean how do you get china to be transparent uh, when they they just continuously say no and and honestly based upon conversations i've had i'm not sure they would say yes if a democrat was in the white house or a republican was in the white house but leave that out of it how do we get china to say yes
4: you've got to increase the cost for them to withhold information to engage in disinformation right now There is no plan. I mean, the Trump administration, in a misguided effort to perhaps go after China, said, well, we're going to freeze funds for the World Health Organization. Well, what did that do? It actually rallied more support behind China, because the U.S. looks like the one that doesn't want to play ball with the rest of the world to work through a multilateral organization. We've got to keep our focus Wearily on Beijing and what Beijing is doing and stop with these distractions.
2: All right. Interesting. Final point, just in the minute or so that we have left, Biden's got to articulate a foreign policy approach we're trying to know.
4: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think this is a moment, quite frankly, for him to do it, to seize the lack of a coherent strategy to lay out a roadmap uh, forward, both uh, what needs to be done now, as well as when, You know, he would take office in January.
2: Interesting. Interesting. Good stuff. Brett Bruin, thanks so much for giving us uh, your perspective. He's the president of the Global Situation Room uh, and former White House Director of Global Engagement uh, for the Obama uh, White House. Brett, always a pleasure. Uh, You know, Keep streaming, my friend. And coming up later on this week, we're going to continue the conversation, uh, talking all things foreign policy, U.S.-China relations. Uh, And on Friday, we just got word, we're looking at Friday for another interview with House Financial Services Committee Chairwoman Maxine Waters, the Democrat from California. Lots of questions for rent lots of questions on mortgages and the housing market so that's really becoming an emerging domestic economic issue uh, to talk with as well i'm kevin cerilli download the bloomberg sound on podcast on apple itunes at bloomberg.com or by downloading the bloomberg business app you can also find me on radio.com iheartradio and spotify thanks for listening to bloomberg
0: 991.